0: For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com.
1: This is the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to Fish and Wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Doug Talamy. and Doug is one of the founders of a conservation organization called Homegrown National Park, and what is so cool about this uh, and really the premise behind Homegrown National Park is essentially for homeowners um, to essentially convert part of their own yard, their own property, um, to their own national park. Uh, and Doug does a much better job of really explaining kind of what that means, how, um, they encourage their members or, uh, you know, just how they encourage people to go out and do that. And Doug quotes it. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but something along the lines of, uh, you know, I'm not, even, I'm not even going to butcher it. I'm just going to let Doug talk about it. Um, but you know, Doug is far as kind of what I guess qualifies him, um, to kind of lend, um, an opinion. Um, his expertise is, uh, Doug is, <clears throat> he's a professor of agriculture in the department of entomology and wildlife ecology. Uh, At the University of Delaware, Um, he's been teaching courses there for 41 years, Um, so he has just a great deal of knowledge and experience when it comes to, you know, wildlife, uh, native plants, uh, insects. You know what the whole ecosystem um, looks like, even um, from you know much larger animals to you know the things that they're eating. That's that they're eating, that they're eating, that they're eating, and so on, and so forth down the line. So it's it's really um, incredible uh, when you kind of hear Doug talk about this and and just the the passion that he has for it. I mean, if you've been doing anything for uh, you know as long as Doug's been you know teaching about you know entomology and wildlife ecology, I mean you you've developed a, a certain uh, relationship with that topic, um, and I'd imagine. For doug it's hard to to really kind of just put that down um that you know not only has doug and his business partner uh founded homegrown national park uh, and not only has he been um, teaching at a university for this long uh, he's also he's also he's also also authored or co-authored four separate books um that are out there as well um you know all in all it's uh it's a really fascinating conversation um and the idea behind Homegrown National Park, I think, is one that uh, is something that's very easy for um, every homeowner um, to do, to participate in, um, and you know, make a difference in their own in their own backyard, in their own community, um, without you know having to do um, a ton of work. So, uh, great episode, week two of Org Month, um, and another um, great one. So. Episode 123 with Doug Talamy. Enjoy it. Today's episode is actually going to be brought to you by my friends over at Stone Glacier. Stone Glacier uh, has been down with the podcast since day one. Uh, One of the very first partner on the podcast. Um, A great group of of guys and gals over there. Great company, uh, obviously with a tremendous product. Um, If you haven't already, download the Stone Glacier app. You can get that on itunes or google play um and just keep up with you know everything that go or excuse me stone glacier has going on um just a ton of great products continue to come out with new packs um new uh outerwear base layers all that good stuff um they've really got something to cover you um but really whatever the situation calls for um you know they're primarily um focused on you know western uh, style hunting um But as a Midwest guy here, I've found a ton of use um, for a lot of their products as well, including uh, the Skyline Bino Harness, which is, I've been using that for the last two years now. And it is, um, it's a dream to use, easy to fit, can fit a multitude of size of uh, binos. um, Super quiet, super easy to use. So highly recommend checking that out. Uh, And you can find that at stoneglacier.com. Today's episode is also going to be brought to you by Wild Rivers Coffee. Marshall and Sammy, the owners of Wild Rivers Coffee, um, are two individuals who are just as passionate about um, coffee as they are conservation. So at Wild Rivers Coffee, they're roasting in small batches so that they can ensure your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe uh, Wild Rivers believes in preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why with everything you purchase from them, Portions of those proceeds are going to be donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. Uh, So you're going to get orgs like RMEF, Trout Unlimited, BHA, Ducks Unlimited. So head over to WildRiversCoffeeCo.com, grab your fresh roasted beans, uh, have some really sweet handmade mugs, some sweet merch as well. Uh, And if you subscribe today, you're going to save 10%. So again, head over to WildRiversCoffeeCo.com. All right. Doug Tallamy, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm fine. Well, How uh, are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I, uh, I appreciate you making some time today. Um, as I mentioned just before we started recording here, I've been uh, looking over the website and, and trying to really brush up and, and learn more about homegrown national Park. So uh, I'm certainly excited to, to learn a bit more about it today.
2: Uh, I am happy to tell you about it. <laughs> oh
1: no, no, that's great. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Doug. Before we really get into uh, to all of that, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself? Give me some of your background.
2: All right, I'm a, I'm an entomologist at the University of Delaware. I have been there for 41 years. Um, people always want to know how I got into this, and I I tell them I was I was born loving nature, and I I think that's the way it goes. You know I have a brother and a sister. We are all raised in the same same house, same experiences, but they don't have that they're not drawn to nature in the same way I am. Um, so you know, I'm not taking any credit for it. I just love it and and that has directed my life right from the very beginning. I discovered entomology in a course in at Allegheny College, my junior year, taught by Robert Bugby. And if you're taught entomology by Robert Bugby, you become an entomologist. <laughs> and that's, that's what happened. <laughs> um, I didn't get to w- where I am today. Um, I studied insect behavior for about 25 years, really interesting stuff. But the conservation end of, of what I'm doing really happened after my wife and I moved into a property in, in uh, Oxford, Pennsylvania. It was a farm that was broken up into 10 acre lots thoroughly invaded with, with non-native plants. And that was the process that, that got me to realize, um, you know, using plants from other continents uh, and then having them escape into our natural areas is is uh, really detrimental to local food webs because our local insects can't eat those plants. So it really clobbers the insect population. Then you don't have enough insects for the birds to reproduce, so they start to decline. And you have this, this vicious cycle, all because we're, we're not – We're not looking at the functionality of the plants we choose for our human-dominated landscapes, and because so many of our landscapes are human-dominated, and we've got 135 million acres of of residential landscapes, uh, and and 85% of our woody invasive plants that are in just about all of our natural areas are escapees from our gardens. So we've had a huge impact on the natural spaces and the unnatural spaces in the U.S. because of our plant choices
1: how is it that, and you mentioned, um, a lot of these non-native species coming from like other countries and things like that. How is it that, that these species or these plant species are able to kind of reproduce or to, to multiply in the way that they are? Uh, cause I think about, um, you know, uh, like habitat in, uh, in the woods, for example, uh, I love to deer hunt and there's a lot of, um, non-native, um, kind of, shrubs and brushes that pop up that kind of cause a lot of havoc, a lot of chaos, um, and kind of almost drowned out a lot of the, the smaller plants that, that may live kind of in that area. How are they, they reproducing like that?
2: Well, there are two, two factors. First of all, most of those plants, again, are escapees from the horticultural trade. They, we, planted, we bought them in nurseries. We planted them in our gardens. Many of them make berries. The birds do eat those berries people say oh they're great for the birds well not really because the birds are reproducing on insects not not berries but they eat the berries they fly out into the woods and they poop the seed out and that's that's how those plants move around now why do they take over there's two reasons they're here without any of their natural enemies so there's there's very few insects eating them there's no diseases so they're in a, a an enemy free space which gives them a real competitive advantage over our native plants the other big one you, you mentioned it is deer Deer don't like these plants. So they eat all the natives. They don't touch the, the autumn olive and the barberry and the burning bush and the, the bush honeysuckle. and the,
1: Yeah, those are all ones that I was thinking of. Stuff. Yeah.
2: yeah. So again, the competitive balance has shifted. You get a baby oak tree pops, pops up above the ground and deer eats it the first day, but it won't touch this other stuff. So, of course, that's all we have left. So deer overabundance is another major part of this, this story.
1: And I think it feels like, and we'll, we'll certainly take a deeper dive into this as, as the conversation goes on, but all of these things being intertwined, um, you know, what's what's good for this is good for that, is good for that, is good for that. Like it's, it's, it's a food chain, it's an ecosystem, everything is relying upon one another uh, for balance and all of that. And when, yeah, something is presented that throws that balance out of whack, then yeah, you start to see... Um, you know, the real trickle-down effect from from one species to the next.
2: Yeah, I often talk about nature being a series of of very specialized interactions. Not all the interactions are specialized, but most of them are. Uh, And these are interactions largely between animals and plants that have evolved over, over the eons. So when you bring in a plant that has not interacted with local animals, you don't have that specialized interaction um so so you we got we built these these um, assemblages of species i'm not going to call them communities because they're not interacting very much but they're assemblages of species uh that they don't know each other they 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 um you know they're just starting to meet each other in evolutionary time so ten thousand, hundred thousand years from now will we have more functional ecosystems yeah but in the meantime we're losing an awful lot of species um you know we We've got three billion fewer breeding birds today than we had uh, just 50 years ago. We've got global insect decline. The UN says we're going to lose a million species in the next next 20 years, and then most of those will be insects. And, and much of that, I mean, there's a lot of rays. We're killing our insects, but taking away the vital plants that produce them is one of the major causes of insect declines.
1: Yeah, and you you mentioned something. You have this this quote on your website, which I thought was was very um it was very well put that's a uh, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this here so it says what if each American landowner converted half of his or her yard to produce native plant communities even moderate success could collectively restore some semblance of ecosystem functions to more than 20 million acres of what is now ecological wasteland I think it's a it's a great yeah. statement and my question is is what or how how are we kind of or are you defining or the, Um, you know, the, the, the world that I guess that we live in or or work in, um, you know, as an entomology, uh, working in entomology, what defines ecological wasteland?
2: Well, the quote you just read was referring to the acreage that we have in lawn right now. Okay. We've got, uh, When I made that, it was about 40 million acres in lawn. It's now up to about 44 million acres of lawn, which is an area bigger than New England, dedicated to this ecological deadscape. And the reason I say that is there are four things that every landscape needs to be doing, needs to be accomplishing, if we're going to reach a sustainable relationship with the natural world that supports us. It's got to support a complex community of pollinators, not because they pollinate our agriculture, but because they're pollinating, you know, 90% of all flowering plants and 80% of all plants. That's one thing. We've got to sequester carbon. We've got to pull as much carbon out of the atmosphere and tie it up in plant tissues, and then pump it into the ground through plant roots as possible. We've got to manage watersheds. Every single landscape is in a watershed, and destroying that watershed is just, you know, not, not ethically uh,
1: viable. Right.
2: And the fourth thing uh, we need to do is support that complex food web. So plants are, are capturing energy from the sun and turning it into simple sugars and carbohydrates. That's the food that supports just about all the animals on the planet. But if that food doesn't get from plants to the animals, then you don't have animals and you don't have a functioning ecosystem that's producing the life support that we humans need. So pollinators, food web, carbon sequestration and managing the watershed. Lawn, turf grass is terrible at doing every one of those. It's, it's, it's the worst plant choice you could have for, for doing any one of those those goals. So that's why I call it an ecological dead It's there, particularly the way we treat it. I mean, we, we mow it every week. So there goes your carbon sequestration. We, we put um, fertilizer, too much, uh, which is laced with uh, broad spectrum uh, herbicides that are going to kill everything except uh, grass right um, you know just full of toxins we, we put insecticides down there just in case there's there's a chinch bug or something so it's a toxic wasteland that is not doing accomplishing any of the four goals that every landscape needs to accomplish
1: yeah I mean those are are all I mean that makes complete sense and I've seen um, or maybe I've just uh, recently, paid attention to it. Um, but I think, uh, there's been this movement, uh, in recent years. Um, it's called like no Mo May where people are not cutting their grass. Uh, and I think it's the month of May. Is that right?
2: Right. Right.
1: And, um,
2: yeah, (laughs) that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, the idea is a good one. And the idea is to uh, allow some of the plants in your yard to actually reach flowering stage so that you can support some pollinators. The problem is pollinators aren't just around in May. Right. Uh, so you, you don't mow your, your lawn in May and then you mow it in June. You killed everything that you just promoted, including all the pollinators that are depending on what you just created. What we really need is no-mow areas that we never mow, not the- just, you know, in May.
1: Almost little so the sanctuaries. So right?
2: But it, it needs to be tweaked a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the the thought or the the idea behind it is in the right place. It's just it's it's not. Uh, it's it's good in the time that it's there, but the the long term effects are are not being really um, capitalized on. I guess.
2: Right. Right. Um, and you know, if you are using the fertilizer with the. Uh, The broadleaf herbicides in it, you just have tall grass that still won't help any pollinators. You need clover, you need dandelions, you need need as many flowering plants as possible to help at least the generalist bees, like the bumblebees and the honeybees. Specialist bees and a third of our 4,000 species of native bees can only reproduce on the pollen of particular plants, and they won't be in your lawn no matter what, whether you mow it or not. So what we really need to do if we're going to help the pollinators is is plant pollinator gardens that are designed to support those native species that rely on on special plants. Plants like Goldenrod and native asters, perennial sunflowers, things like that, evening primrose. They're supporting a lot of specialist bees. And those are the ones we need to focus on because the generalists can use the the specialized plants as well as the specialists.
1: Okay. So Doug, you mentioned kind of early on that when I was asking you a bit about your background, that um, the your your choice to kind of or how you landed on entomology and wildlife ecology is that you were you know you were just drawn to the outdoors you know from a very young age. What did you know being drawn to the outdoors? What did that look like to you? I mean, was it you know just poking around in the woods, you know, going camping, going hiking? I mean, how? You know, how was that kind of cultivated, you know, throughout the early part of your life?
2: It was all of those. Um, I was like most other little boys. I didn't know anything about insects, but I sure liked turtles and snakes and lizards. And I collected all of them.
1: All the good stuff. I had
2: pet snakes, pet snakes right into college. Um, And if you have a snake, you've got to collect the food to feed that snake. Uh, my much of my uh, youth was spent camping in North Jersey at a place called Deer Lake, uh, and it was a lake. It had woods. It had everything. So yeah, I spent all day long running around the woods and looking in the water, and looking everywhere in the streams. It was it was a wonderful uh, exposure to the natural world.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing. Um,
2: and you know it's 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 what so many of our kids are missing today. They don't have that opportunity. Uh, and it's just it's a shame.
1: Yeah, I mean that was where the next words out of my mouth was it's it's a shame and it's amazing how much times have changed in terms of like I think, you know, I'm in my late 30s now. I think about my upbringing and you know how I was, you know, a lot of the same things poking around in the woods just almost like being self-taught about all these different things kind of in the natural world, um, trying to to gain or glean some type of understanding from, you know, the things that you're digging up, whether it's you're looking for worms to go fishing or you're just, you know, poking around in the garden and you're seeing all these bugs and different insects, like you mentioned, and now it's just, it's not that way, unfortunately. And, you know, maybe part of that is, I mean, obviously technology plays a, a big role in that, but I think it also can probably come back to uh, the quote that we just talked about with all these ecological wastelands. That you know, I was fortunate that you know, a, a three-minute bike ride down the road from my house, I had you know, a bunch of you know, woods and and wetlands and things like that that I could go explore on. You know, now where I live, uh, I my kids don't have that that opportunity, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of that is gone. It's 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 a terrible shame. Also. You know, our culture has, has adopted this risk free attitude. If you let your kids go out and play, you, somebody calls the cops on you for parental, parental abuse and, or child abuse. So it's, it's crazy. Um, I mean, when we grew up, we left early in the morning, and my parents said, come back at dinner time. And <laughs> yep. that was it.
1: Yeah, and a, a lot of the time Yeah, and a lot of times you had to rely on at least someone in your friend group to have a watch or to have some way of knowing what time yeah, it was. Exactly. Otherwise, you know, it was just yeah. guess it was just guesswork at that point.
2: Yeah. Actually where we grew up, they had a six o'clock whistle at the center of the town, it would go off. And so we'd know at least when it was six o'clock. So.
1: <laughs> oh, there you go.
2: <laughs> we, we didn't have an excuse, yeah.
1: Yeah. So Doug, with, with all the work that you've done. In your career in the field of entomology and wildlife ecology, what was it that brought you to the point of looking to start Homegrown National Park or, yeah?
2: Uh, well, you know, all right, the, the concept of Homegrown National Park really started, I remember very, very clearly. It was a Sunday morning and I came across the statistic, it was a 2005 statistic, that we had 40 million acres of lawn. Uh, and I remember sitting at the dining room table thinking, well, well, gee, what if we cut that area in half? That would give us 20 million acres we could put towards conservation. Uh, and if we did that at home, you know, maybe that'd be big enough to create a new national park. We could call it Homegrown National Park. So I start adding up, how big is 20 million acres? I start adding the, the area of Yellowstone and Yosemite and the Smokies and all our major national parks. And you add them all up, it's still less than 20 million acres. I said, "Wow, Homegrown National Park can be the biggest park in the country," and I started talking about it in my talks. It wasn't until I wrote uh, Nature's Best Hope that I, I wrote a chapter about Homegrown National Park, but it didn't it didn't come into being uh, in terms of a nonprofit until I met Michelle Alfenberry, who uh, she was a businesswoman who had just retired from Manhattan and moved to Connecticut. Um, one of one of her neighbors. Brought her to one of my talks. She she didn't know anything about nature and you know just wasn't into this at all. Um, But to be you know (laughs) to keep up uh, neighborly relationships, she agreed to come to the talk. Uh, And and she listened. She she was she was fascinated by the the um, the audience's reaction, uh, and she saw it as as essentially a marketing opportunity. She said, she came up to me afterwards. She said, you know, um, this is a great message, but if you don't get it beyond the choir, beyond the people who come to your talks, it's never going to work. And I said, yeah, I know that. I said, but that requires social media and all the stuff that I don't do. She said, well, (laughs) I do do that. (laughs) She said, we need to create this nonprofit and we'll call it homegrown national park. And and I was really dubious in the beginning because that's a lot of work and it's, and, you know, I, she said, you'll be the scientific advisor. You won't have to do much. So, you know, with that, I said, okay, I, I agree. Of course, I've ended up doing more than, than I wanted to. But it, of course. it really is important. We've got, you know, we've got more than 20,000 people have joined Homegrown National Park at this point. The, the object is to, to reach the non-choir, to, to motivate people, to get the message that everybody not just the tree huggers, but everybody has a responsibility to good earth stewardship. Most people don't know that. They think, well, the conservationists do that. They don't realize that their yard is an important part of conservation. Um, they don't realize the extent to which we have a biodiversity crisis, and they don't—they don't understand at all that that they really can play a role in turning this around. So that's what the that's what the nonprofit is all about is getting that message to go viral across the country. We've got this map that when um, people join and it's free, by the way, you register your property and the amount of area that you actually are going to be a good steward of, and that little piece of your county lights up. Uh, and the goal is that um, eventually the entire country is going to light up, and we can see who's participating, who's not, where we have um, strong conservation efforts, and where we need to work harder. The connectivity between natural areas, all that should show up on this this map. Um, So it's, you know, we've got a we've got a global biodiversity crisis, but the solution is a grassroots solution if we can get everybody on board. It it divides this giant problem up into manageable, you know, manageable um, efforts. You don't have to worry about the entire planet's problem. Just worry about what's happening on your property. And that's very manageable. You can get rid of your invasive plants, you can reduce the area you have in lawn, and you can plant the, the important natives that are going to uh, support the food web and all the birds and everything else. Those are those are manageable things that everybody can do. So that's the goal, and we're off to a pretty good start.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a... Uh, it's... It... The way you talk about it, uh, in terms of you know, if focusing on you know essentially what you can control um, as a as a homeowner as an individual, and to me that message um, rings so true because it, if you if you've listened to any of the previous podcasts, I mine mean, I always the last thing I always say before I end it is conservation starts with you, and I, I firmly believe that because it doesn't, you know, one, uh, Jared Frazier, the executive director of 2%, he's come on the podcast multiple times and talked about, you know, conservation is not a competition. And again, that's something that I completely agree with and doing your part, um, is, is where it all starts, you know, and that's in this particular case, turning your, your homestead or a portion of your, your, your yard, your homestead into, um, you know, a more biodiverse area. And it's, it's not something that's difficult. You just have to make the commitment to doing it.
2: Yeah, it's it's really all about plant choice. You choose the right plants. It doesn't mean that it has to be wild and messy. Uh, notice I say reduce the area of lawn, not get rid of it, because lawn is a great cue for care. The area of lawn that you have, you keep it mowed, we keep it manicured, and that tells your neighbors that you understand what the culture is and you're part of it, you're just going to have more plants in your yard. And if you choose the right plants, most people don't know the difference between a ginkgo and an oak. Uh, Well, there's a huge difference biologically. Ginkgos don't add anything to the food web, and oaks add more than any other plant in the country. So, you know, a simple choice like that can make a huge difference without upsetting your neighbors in in any way.
1: So do you guys have um, essentially, I guess, like resources uh, that are available to to people that – that want to put their, um, you know, home on the map or, or become part of Homegrown National Park, uh, in terms of, if they're, you know, in this region of the country, these are plants that we, you know, suggest, um, you know, that you plant. These are, you know, native plants that'll help, um, you know, historically the, the wildlife and and all the the plant or the um, insects and everything that are in that region.
2: Right. Um... Yeah, we call those keystone plants. They're the ones that are contributing the most energy to food webs. I mentioned oaks because they're the very best keystone plant in 84% of the counties in which they occur. Um, there's a, a uh, tool on the National Wildlife Federation website called Native Plant Finder. Uh, so that's, if you go to our website, homegrownnationalpark.org, you can find that that tool. Then you put in your zip code and the ranked uh, list of plants both woody plants and herbaceous plants that are best in your county will pop up. So we don't have to guess anymore which the best plants are. It's all, all right there. We also have a resource page so the people that are selling these plants, um, landscape designers. Uh, we need to expand that a lot because the country's big. But uh, it gets people started on where they can actually get help. The reality is most people don't garden themselves. They hire somebody. And we really need to expand uh, the the career option that I call ecological landscapers or ecological gardeners, so that people that don't have the time or don't have the interest but they know it's what they ought to do can just hire somebody and say, "You do it." It would be just like hiring the the lawn service only it's going to be a lot more productive than the lawn service. That's where I want to go eventually but yeah our our website is is full of information to get you started,
1: yeah, now. How long, in your experience, Doug, does it take for you know someone who decides to actively participate in in turning um, a portion of their lawn into uh, you know their own homegrown national park? How long do you think before the the results are there for for kind of that you know that small little ecosystem or that small little area that they have? Because I'd imagine that when you're dealing with, you know, pollinators, small insects and birds, a lot of what is taking place is it's you're not seeing it, right? Like you're not seeing a tree grow um, and then, you know, potentially, uh, you know, animals coming in to feed off of that or whatever the case is. You know, these are this is a much uh, smaller um, kind of scale of of animals and insects that are, are utilizing these things.
2: Well, you'd be surprised. You see it a lot faster than you think. I've got a picture of a, um, a pin oak uh, in its first year of life. It germinated from its corn and it's popped its head above the leaves there. There's a caterpillar standing on the ground eating the leaves of that plant. Now, that caterpillar is going to be bird food in just a few hours. So the bird that's going to eat that caterpillar will be in your yard. Um in order to have breeding birds in your yard, you need thousands of caterpillars, and those oak trees and other things that you plant will produce those caterpillars. So you you will see wildlife come to your yard much faster than you would imagine. When we moved into our property, it had been mowed for hay; there wasn't anything here. And the very first year, I planted a bunch of acorns. So it's been 22 years now, but those those trees are 60, 70 feet tall now. Um, we have wood thrush breeding in our yard. That's a forest bird. And remember, we started from, from bare ground. So uh, it didn't take all that long. Um, so, uh, and and if you're, if you're talking about, you know, attracting pollinators, you will get them the very first season. As soon as that plant is in bloom, they're there. They're looking for forage uh, all the time. What's interesting is you get to record the new things that come to your yard each year. We've got a whole list of, of the, the species of birds that have started breeding here and that, I remember when the gray tree frog first came and all these new things that are coming. I've been taking a picture of every species of moth that is now making a living at our, our house by taking a picture of the moth or its caterpillar. And I'm up to 1,195 species of just moths.
1: Wow. Um, and
2: all of, this, all of this has come because we put the plants back. Uh, and it started coming right away. So it's really rewarding. Uh, you don't you know, have to go looking for that stuff, but it will be there. Uh, so you, th- that's positive reinforcement to show that, that you really have made a difference uh, right where you live. And that's, you know, people like that. People are concerned about the, these, these biodiversity losses. The problem is they think there's nothing they can do about it. We have this notion that humans and nature cannot coexist, and that's the way we've lived for, you know, an awful long time. That's why you have to turn around. The only, the only long-term sustainable solution on this planet is for humans and nature to coexist. We all live in the same place. So learning how to do that is, is our goal. Uh, and the reason we have to do that is we need functional ecosystems everywhere, not just in parks and preserves. So we now have to practice conservation outside of parks and preserves. And again, that's what Homegrown National parks all about.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I could not agree more. How long did it take for you and Michelle to, to really get Homegrown National Park um, up and running and off the ground?
2: Well, it's, we're just pushing the two-year mark now. Okay. Um, so we had uh, about six months before that, neither one of us actually wanted to do a nonprofit because of all the all the paperwork and the board and all the <laughs> things that is involved with a nonprofit. Um. But it ended up being that way because it was the most logical thing to do. Uh, otherwise, you've got to generate some kind of uh, a profit. <laughs> I mean, right. We right. weren't about you know selling things either. So, so we fooled around for for you know six months or so with kind of false starts, and then realized, well, I really do have to do a, a nonprofit. So, um, the map has been uh, functional for about you know a little bit more than a year and a half now. That has been the hardest part. I mean, that's our the visual part of the website that people get excited about but it requires hiring a tech company um and actually we're we're our second tech company Um, you'd you'd think that it'd be easy to do it's not (laughs) easy to do and then (laughs) then getting everybody's data and you know do we do it through zip codes or do we do it uh, through addresses and a lot of complications there protecting privacy so uh, we're still actually working that. We've got Map Version One. We're getting ready to launch Map Version Two, which will be a lot more user friendly uh, and offer a lot more information. That's where the entire country is going to light up, instead of just just your county. Uh, map Version Three will actually uh, present the, the plants that people put in the actual species, so we can we can look at that. It can become a, a research tool um, if we if we keep developing it. But all this requires technological savvy that we don't have. So you got to hire a company. They're real expensive and it takes more time, time than we have. Um, We're, you know, we, (laughs) we get emails all the time. Oh, you should do this. You should do this. Get somebody in your team to do this. Well, we need to build a team first.
1: <laughs>
2: the you know the, it's it's all gone through volunteer efforts um, up up till now, and we've got to move beyond that where we have we have paid positions, and yeah, you know, we're getting there. We're getting some some donations that that are helping a lot. Um, so it's it's a building process. Michelle says all the time, this cannot be a slow build. You know, the the biodiversity crisis is is real and happening right now, so we can't. I calculated once if we added a thousand acres to to Homegrown National Park a month, it would take us 11,000 years to reach our goal.
0: <laughs> oh wow,
2: <laughs> that's a little too too slow. So, so yeah. we needed to uh, we needed to just uh, explode in in terms of activity, um, so that we. I mean, the real goal is to change the culture, so that everybody knows conservation is not optional. It's essential. It's everybody's responsibility. It's the norm. You know, if you if you have plants in your yard, you're not going to get fined by your civic association because everybody knows we need these things. I want people to recognize that, that we need biodiversity as much as we need water, as much as we need uh, to work on climate change. They're all related. Uh, <clears> and, and it is accelerating. It's happening. So uh, our goal at Hong Kong National Park is to keep up with the momentum that that uh, um, we've we've started to generate.
1: Yeah, I mean, over twenty thousand members uh, that you mentioned already in just uh, just a few short years. I think that's incredible, and I think, and maybe this is just me living in a bit of a bubble, and you know, in the area that I live in. But you know, the the neighborhood, the subdivision that I live in, is a very kind of tight knit community to some degree. Um, you know, a lot of the neighbors are very close with one another. A lot of kids with you know within the same age group and and things like that. But I feel like in an area like where I'm in in, and my my subdivision is maybe, I don't know, 120 homes, something like that, that even if, you know, if, if I'm the first one to do this and then I'm talking to, you know, the two neighbors that live on either side of me or someone who lives across the street from me about, you know, why I'm doing this and why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I just think about the impact that that our little subdivision could have if even just half of of the homes within the subdivision, take just a small chunk of their their backyard, and you know replant that with, um, excuse me, with native plants and things like that, and watch how that works. Because there's you know a good portion of these homes here that that back up to you know like a small chunk of woods or something like that. So it's mm-hmm. not like it's gonna really mm-hmm. you know put this big divide between a home you know that's behind them or something along those lines.
2: Right. You mentioned the word backyard. I'm going to push back on that and say, don't forget the front yard. If we only talk about backyard habitat, we've cut our conservation opportunity in half, and it also implies that when you add that oak tree to your yard, it's so ugly, you've got to hide it in the backyard. And that is not true. You can put that in the front yard. So I talk about yards instead of backyards. Um, and I'm sure in that 120 home neighborhood you live in, somebody can put something in their front yard too.
1: Yeah. I like that. I like that you that you called me on that because I've never I've never looked at it that way, right? I've always been like, oh, the front yard and the backyard, and maybe it's yeah. just because like our backyard is fenced in because we have you know young kids and dogs and things like that. But you're absolutely right. It's it's the yard as a whole because you know sun hits the the front of the house differently than it hits the back of the house, so it's it's yeah. its own little area. Um, you know, it's 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 very diverse from front to back and all the way around. So, yeah. That's a, right. uh, that's very good. So Doug, you know, not only have you, you know, done all this tremendous work in, in the field of entomology, uh, wildlife ecology, um, starting homegrown national park, you're also, uh, you know, a published author, uh, what is it? Four times over, I believe.
2: I'll call, I'll say three and a half because <laughs> one was a co-author with Rick dark.
1: <laughs> so, all right. I'm going to give you the over on this though, but, all right. <laughs> How? What is, What is the process like? You know, going into to writing a book, and and what really kind of sparks that fire for you to say, okay, um, you know, the, here's a topic that that I I just feel there should be more on, or that I want to write on. Kind of walk me through that process of of writing a book, and then um, all that goes into it.
2: Okay, that's a good question because. Um, I did not set out to write any books, but we started doing research on the impact of non-native plants on on local food webs. And bird clubs started to invite me to talk about our research, and they started saying, you know, we want to read something about this. Of course, we had just we'd just gotten grants. We hadn't written anything yet. We, you know, most of the the experiments were underway. So I said, you know, there, there is nothing to read. And I said that for a year. And then finally, kind of out of self-defense, I said, all right, I'll write a pamphlet. Uh, and I did. But the pamphlet got a little long. And <laughs> it, became, it became the first book, Bringing Nature Home. But it was a response to what the people who were interested in um, really wanted to hear. And I, I laid the book out based on questions that I would get at every single talk. You know, why do we need biodiversity? What, what do insects have to do with it? Um, on and on and on. And and I wrote it directly for the public because they were the one asking. You know, I'm my background is academia. If you write a book for other scientists, it's a big deal because you know they're going to criticize it <laughs> all over the place. So <laughs> you got to have a thousand references and and all all the data. I did have a lot of data, but Timber Press made me take it out. He said, People don't want to see that. I said, Well, how did they know I'm telling the truth? Yeah. So Bring Nature Home did not have a lot of data in it. But um, I published it and I also I knew nothing about the you know, the world of publishing and I thought I thought, Well, now that I've written a book, I won't have to give any more talks because people can just read about it. But of course, it's just the opposite. If you write a book, then everybody wants you to go talk about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even if they
2: do read the book, they want you to talk about it.
1: Everyone's got follow-ups. So
2: the first book, yeah, the first book happened because of what the public wanted. And, and it was 10 years before I wrote the second book, um, the the Nature's Best Hope book, because we had learned a lot. When I wrote Bringing Nature Home, um, it was the very beginning. We were just starting to learn this stuff. Well, 10 years of research, we learned a lot. Uh, and the situation has gotten more dire, you know, all these scary statistics about, uh, extinction crisis and everything that happened. And I really thought it was time for, for an an update, uh, and, um, a little bit more motivation to get people to realize the, the urgency of this message. So that's the message in bringing in, in nature's best hope is you are nature's best hope. We need you, everybody. Uh, and if you don't play the game, then we don't have any hope for nature. So that's the message there. Um, then my wife said, you know, you should write a book about oaks. And that was kind of a just a fun book of what is, is using the oaks in our yard, what species. Uh, and that was easy because all I had to do was look out my window <laughs> each month of the year and record what was happening. Uh, and I really didn't think people would, would be very interested in that. But it turns out they, they are because it – it exposes an entire world of life that's happening on the trees in your yard that, that most people don't notice, you know, you need a little bit of knowledge to go out and find things. And, and once they have it, then knowledge generates interest and interest generates compassion. And I would say we need a lot more compassion towards the natural world. So those were the reasons I wrote each one of those books. Um, it turned out to be easier than I thought it would be. You know, I'd write for an hour in the morning. Um, and
1: you know, each book took about a year, but that was that was it. I mean, first off, I have a, a great amount of respect and admiration for anyone who who publishes a book that's that that is not an author by trade, because it's to me it just seems incredibly daunting. Like I know when it comes time for me to edit my podcast and publish it. And, you know, you have to do a small write up on, on the conversation that you had. And, you know, I take notes throughout the course of this, but sometimes to, to put together a paragraph takes me 20 minutes to do. And I just had the conversation, you know, 10 minutes ago. Um, So to, to come up with, you know, two, three, 400 pages, however, however long the book is um, seems like such a daunting task. And it's it's one that I guess like I said I, I really admire in people that set out to do that if it's not something that they're doing for a living, and what I oftentimes find too is is books like that or written by people who are not again um, you know full time authors um, tend to have their own style of writing and one that that I kind of appreciate because it's I read it more in the sense of having a conversation with someone uh, or or just, you know, kind of retaining all this information instead of trying to be very prim and proper, um, like, you know, right. uh, like someone right. would 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 typically read in, you know, a nonfiction or, you know, something like that.
2: Yeah, yeah, that that's exactly right. Conversational 10, I think, is really important. I was protected. I protected myself when I was writing Bring Nature Home and it was new. By just, you know, I said nobody's going to read this, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> if nobody's going to read it, I can just write it and not worry about it without worrying, you know, struggling with each sentence. And it it became very conversational. I was surprised when people did read it, but uh, if I had worried about, um, you know, style and tone and all the things that that um, I guess my English teacher would have told me to worry <laughs> about. It would have been much more laborious, but I did. I just had a conversation between me and the people that were interested. Uh, and then it became you know, it became pretty easy. Just like you, I'm talking to you. I would write it down and, and then it's done.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, I would have a goal, you say, working on one paragraph. That was my goal each day. I'm going to write one paragraph. But often, once you get that paragraph done, you say, well, here's the next one that has to happen. Um, I still had some time, so I'd move right on. And sometimes you get, you know, four, five, six paragraphs done uh, very quickly because it was, you you didn't lose the logical flow. Every once in a while you had to struggle with a paragraph. But um, And the other thing is to do it regularly so you don't have to start from scratch with your mental processes each time. So writing every day became an important part of it.
1: Yeah, muscle memory. I, I totally understand that. So, you know, Every, every October, well, I say every, this, is, this, this coming October will be um, the second time uh, that I've done it, but I, I like to focus um, the entire month on just um, conservation organizations specifically. And, um, homegrown national park, uh, is a community partner with 2% for conservation who we partner with on the podcast here. So how was it, Doug, that you first learned about 2% and then what did that process look like becoming involved and becoming a community partner with them?
2: Well, that's very young. I mean, we just learned about 2%. Uh, and, and, um, again, this is where Michelle comes in. She's had, she's had the dealings with them and, and not me, um, so yeah, I I can't answer that uh, very well. Uh, other than I think it's I think it's a great concept. Um, yeah. But uh, and 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 we're brand new. But you know I I, I <laughs> that's all I can say. Hey,
1: that's all right. I'd rather you not try yeah. to uh, feed me a line here um, when you're not yeah, entirely line, sure. You know? <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. And yeah, one of the nice things about two percent is what they they really help pair um, people um, and businesses or organizations that fit what they what they care about right so conservation you know if if someone just reaches out to two percent says hey uh, i want to start doing my part um you know i don't have a lot of time to to go out and volunteer places you know what can i do you know this is where where two percent will step in and say hey there's a, an organization called Homegrown National Park. This is what they do. This is where you can learn more information, and just kind of send them your way, and they kind of become this uh, middleman between, you know, regular everyday people or businesses um, and these, you know, all these tremendous organizations that are out there um, doing, um, you know, wonderful things for conservation, whether it's um, conservation as a whole or species-specific type things. Um, so it's really um, incredible.
2: Yeah, I think it's fantastic. Um, you Have a company say, "Hey, I only put two percent of my profit towards conservation." I mean, that's pretty good. <laughs>
1: yeah, especially for some of these so, large companies.
2: Yeah, we, we certainly appreciate that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, Doug, before I let you get out of here, uh, where can people find out uh, more and learn more about Homegrown National Park and sign up um, to help? You know, get rid of some of this ecological wasteland.
2: You go to our website, homegrownnationalpark.org. It's all one word, uh, and it's all there.
1: Okay. Well, Doug, thank you a ton for uh, taking some time to join me today. Uh, I certainly enjoyed learning more about Homegrown National Park, everything that that um, you and Michelle are doing and growing there and um, being part of the solution and not the problem. So thank you very much.
2: Well, Thanks for the opportunity, Marcus. Really appreciate
1: it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Doug, take care of yourself and look forward to talking to you soon okay take care all right all right well thank you to doug for joining me on the podcast today uh, certainly enjoyed learning more about homegrown national park um definitely be sure and check them out uh if what you heard today is something that you um are interested in. i would also like to thank the partners of the podcast Hardside hydration stone glacier go hunt wild rivers coffee outdoor class and of course Two percent for conservation. Um, please be sure to go out and support these brands I just mentioned here um, that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about Two Percent for Conservation, you can look for that. You can visit their website fishandwildlife.org, and there you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only positive conservation driven content landing in your feeds. So again if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on <laughs> you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week everyone. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned next week. We have another great one. Also, be sure to head over to theaverageconservationist.com and uh, grab some merchandise to help support conservation in the process. So until next week, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.